Good morning, everyone. Don't worry, this is not another surprise education. <laughs> well, it's great to be here with you this morning, and Rivka enjoys so much the worship that she didn't realize actually it's finished for now, and she kept singing and bubbling and making all the noises uh, that the instruments on the stage make, so like boom, boom, papa, all these kind of things, right, Rivka? So my mind has kind of been a little bit distracted by, uh, by this and by thinking about her and her singing that actually for God is supposed to bring the message. I'm just joking. <laughs> well, we have finally reached the D of deploy, and today we are continuing with the series on doing the good work, and we arrived in Nehemiah chapter 6, and we'll be looking today at the topic of shut the door on distractions. So Rivka, thank you so much. You have been such a good and nice distraction. So now you can go back uh, to your mom, and you can do all the noises that you want at the back, perhaps, okay? Thank you. <laughs> so we have seen that Nehemiah was an Israelite official serving the Persian king as a cup bearer. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's wall, he is deeply saddened. So he prays, and apparently, out of the blue, he's given permission from the king to go and rebuild the walls. And the king even gives him an armed escort and extra resources to carry out the work. But after arriving and beginning the building project, he also faces opposition from the people who are already living around Jerusalem. So here we are in Nehemiah chapter 6. But before we continue, there's a very important point to remember. The more that you, what you are doing is an attack to the devil, or the more that what you are doing is God's work, the more the devil will try to destroy, to destroy you. But as he can't do that, his usual tactic is to try to distract you. And why does he do that? Because, sadly, it works. And we read in Nehemiah um, verse 1, in chapter 6, verse 1, that Nehemiah had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, he had not set the doors in the gates. So the work is almost finished. After a lot of hard effort, they are almost there. The wall was rebuilt, just the gates kind of were missing. And that's when we normally put our guard down. When we feel that we have basically achieved what we wanted, that things are perhaps going better, and we have a moment of calm. An example of that is that most deaths on uh, Mount Everest actually happen on descent. After you have reached the summit and after you're extremely exhausted and perhaps let your guard down. And here in chapter 6, we read, um, we read of Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem that they were not happy with Nehemiah's work. And we read of three ways in which they tried to distract Nehemiah from completing the building project at this strategic time. The first one, in verses 1 and 2, Nehemiah is called for a meeting in the Valley of Ono several times. Ono was probably a village on the border with Philistia, which is probably about 20 miles from, from Jerusalem. So maybe not the closest or the best place for Nehemiah to go and have a chat with his enemies, right? But thankfully, we read in verse 3 that Nehemiah understood the plot. He was too focused on what is important and was living his life with a clear purpose. 
Idan acknowledges that the work cannot stop. He's doing a great work. He can't see the finish line. He cannot go and see them. C.S. Lewis, in the screw tape letters, write that there are two errors we can fall in about the devil. Disbelief in his existence or having an unhealthy interest or fear of him. And Nehemiah was more in a physical battle, but we are instead in a spiritual one. As he understood the plot to distract him, we cannot be spiritually sleeping. Especially in the West, where there's so much materialism that the devil makes us believe that he's not really like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, as the Bible says, but rather perhaps like a little cat that, yes, we need to be a little bit careful of, but at the end of the day, you know, this cat is just going to stay away from us and it's not really going to bother us because he's got other bigger and he's busy with other stuff. Therefore, our minds can kind of be like sleeping and we can like flow along with life and we can just be tossed away with all the waves of all the distractions that we have today. For example, you might be planning to have some quiet time, spend some time with God. And as you are about to do that, or as you are doing that, somehow it always seems to happen that you hear a ping, and then you check, and there's a WhatsApp message, or maybe that important, that important email, and before you know it, 10, 20 minutes have gone by, and basically there's no more time to do what you intended to do. Anyone else been there, or is it just me? You don't need to raise your hands, don't worry. <laughs> so we continually forget that we are at war with a clear purpose and a clear objective. And so, we're not really prepared for that. As in chapter 4, in verses 17 and 18, we read that people were working, and they were carrying materials in one hand and a weapon in the other, and every builder had a sword on the side. So how are you doing with your spiritual sword, with the word of God, and your spiritual armor? How are you doing, maybe at work, when your faith is tested, perhaps by colleagues, or by situations you encounter. Our lives in the Bible are also compared to a race, a race we need to run. Hebrews 12.1 says, let us throw off everything, distractions included, that hinders and the sin that so easy entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Do we recognize our purpose in life? If you, if you will have to complete the sentence, I live for, I live for, how would you finish it? How are you working towards it? And what are the distractions that are basically stopping you from reaching it? The second way Nehemiah's enemy tried to distract him is by sending him an open letter. In the East, normally letters were sent with silken bags, and an open letter would have tried to create alarm among the Jews and to excite them against Nehemiah. And we finally do read the reason for the meeting request. Apparently, there was a rumor that him and the Jews were planning to rebel and that he would have been the new king. But of course, they were lying and Nehemiah knew that. He couldn't be. He had the approval and the support of the king to carry out his work. And incredibly, this accusation made him continue his work with even greater determination. Not discouragement, 
but determination. He didn't let, he didn't let someone else's opinion, rumor, or gossip disrupt him from God's call on his life. How about us? How easy is it to be swayed by what other people think or say? How easy is it to be like a people pleaser? And how hard is to stand firm and don't let discouragement take over when we encounter opposition? Especially nowadays when Christian values and the Christian view seem so outdated and unpopular. Having a strong relationship with the Lord, being disciplined in praying and reading his word, having a strong conviction of his will on our lives is the only way for us to be able to fight distractions and discouragement. But I believe that both in Amaya's case and in our lives, it is also important to be surrounded by other like-minded people. This one is one of the many reasons why it is essential to come to church and have fellowship with other believers so that we can have mutual encouragement and just help one another to stay on the right path. From verse 5 to 9, we also learn that another important lesson, that not all distractions are evidently wrong. What's wrong in going to meet your opponents to change their mind, to convince them of your plan and to try to expand your influence? Well... In Nehemiah's case, it was going to be a big distraction, and he would have made all the work stop. An example is when I walk on the stage with Rivka before. She's not a bad distraction, right? She's lovely, cute, and all the rest. But at this time, in this context, it would be wrong to, for her to be here with me on the stage and to distract us all, right? Similarly, we like to go and forage wild mushrooms. I know you might think that's a bit weird, but I can assure you that if you find the right ones, they are really tasty, trust me. However, not all the mushrooms are good, and of all the good ones, some are better than others. So make sure you don't eat that one, okay? Even though it's beautiful. And when you go in the forest, it's just so easy to be distracted maybe by the landscape, by other beautiful mushrooms like that one, which you shouldn't eat, or perhaps even by some mushroom which are good, but you know, they're just all right, they're not the best, right? And you might forget the real purpose why you are there, to find this specific type, which is really good on your pasta. D.L. Moody said something really profound. He said that our greatest fear should not be of failure. So our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. We read of the third way um, in verses 10. We read, that, we read that Shemaiah tells Nehemiah that his enemies were coming to kill him and try to convince him to go and hide in the temple. Shemaiah appears to be a concerned brother, a prophet offering the counsel of God and suggesting something that at first hand can seem spiritual but it was completely the opposite. And Nehemiah wasn't going to hide, take special privileges because of his status, or lead with an entitled heart. No, doing that would have been abuse of his power, sin, and would have implied that he was probably like a malefactor just running away. So how do we do when successful, when successful and confronted with opportunities to act with an entitled spirit and have special privileges because we deserve them? even though they might be seen in front of our Lord. 
If you have been there, you know how it feels. You have the little voice telling you, are you sure this is right? Honoring to the Lord or honoring to this person or to that person? Sadly, and very sadly, the Christian world has had way more than enough scandals on this. Enough professing Christians taking advantage of their position of power and giving space to financial and moral sin in their lives. If you get into a position of power and control, there's a real danger that you think that you are the one making the rules, but they actually just apply for everyone else. But not Nehemiah. He wasn't going to back off. He wasn't going to take off his eyes from the goal. They were so close. In Acts 20, I recorded the last words of the Apostle Paul to the believers in Ephesus. Having spent three years there, now it was the last time he was going to see them. So this was his final reminder. So you can imagine that he would have chosen to say something significantly important for them. So Acts 20, 22 to 24, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are, are facing me. However, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And John Piper comments on this last verse saying that it can basically be paraphrased with this sentence. It is better to lose your life than waste it. It is better to lose your life than waste it. Quite strong words, right? But both Paul and Nehemiah were willing to risk it all for the sake of, for the sake of completing the task they were given. They chose that and considered that above having a calm, risk-free life. And they were not distracted by other things. In light of eternity, the number of years we will have spent on this earth will seem almost insignificant, like a drop of water in the ocean. But how we use our life and the things we did will carry much weight. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15 says, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Finally, we read in verses 14 and 15 that only after 52 days, the wall was completed. 52 days, that's quite an impressive time. If you have to compare that with the Colosseum in Rome, for example, despite all the slaves that they had in Rome at the time, no working hours, I don't think they had any or any well-being rules for employees, the Colosseum took probably about seven to eight years, which is still good. But here, 52 days. And there was no direct miracle from God. No bricks falling from the sky on top of one another. No any fire from heaven on Nehemiah's enemies. 
Nehemiah was just an ordinary guy who loved and treasured God and was able to do this because of his vision and help that God gave him. So God uses people who are committed to him, who have a heart for the same things that he cares about and who are disciplined and work righteously. In verse 16, we read that even all their enemies and surrounding nations realized that this work had been done with the help of God. And yet, we, we don't read of any of them turning to the Lord, sadly. But what if it was the same for our lives? People seeing something and realize that our behavior is not normal, can be normal, but it points to the existence and for the glory of God. And this is where we need to be careful how we manage praise and where we point the glory that comes from it. Nevertheless, it, this didn't only lead to the rebuilding of the world, but in chapter 8 and 9, we read that it also led to people of Israel recommitting their lives to the Lord. When Ezra started reading the book of the law, people started crying and understood just how far they have fallen away from the Lord how much they needed to refocus their lives on what really mattered, on the one being that mattered the most. In chapter 1, we see that Nehemiah is so afflicted and, and very afflicted by the news of the state of Jerusalem's wall. And I believe that his care and suffering that he experienced helped him to stay focused. And still nowadays, God sometimes allows suffering to keep us on the right path. Because suffering can bring everything into perspective. Me and Savannah knew a young girl, mid-twenties, uh, from when we studied. She just joined the year after we left. She was very talented. Um, she was very passionate about the gospel. So much so that she wanted to spend her life to share this hope and to help others. And so she was preparing to do that with the studies. But then, three months ago, something tragic happened. While she was biking in the Alps, somehow she falls from her bike, hits her head, and sadly passes away a couple of days later. But despite this tragedy, God has comforted hearts, and he has used this for his glory. Family and close friends were really comforted, extremely comforted. And we have been told that at funerals, some people even gave their life to Christ. His story even made it to the news, to the Christian news especially, with this as the final question. Who will go now instead of her to share this gospel? Who will go I'm sure because of her life and influence, many people will live a more dedicated life to the Lord, remembering what really matters and setting aside all other distractions. Suffering can and does put things into perspective. In the Bible, we also read of other examples of people that were able to set aside distractions and to complete the purpose in their lives. A couple of weeks back, Ian mentioned Esther and on how she used her position to bring deliverance to the Jews. And to do so, she was willing to risk her comfortable, her comfortable life as the queen. 
Another one which I personally love is Moses, and we read a bit about him in Hebrews 11, where he says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt. Because, and here is the key word, because he was looking ahead to his reward. But can you imagine being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, basically his grandchild? All the riches, all the privileges that you will be entitled to, all the fame, the success, the power, all things that people today strive and work so hard to try to achieve. And he had way more than we could ever imagine or probably have in our lives. And yet he gave it all up and he considered them a distraction. And he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than that. He chose to follow God's will and purpose for his life. And in God's economy, that had a greater impact than if he wouldn't have chosen to do so. But Esther, Moses, the Maya, they all point to a bigger example. They all point to someone else who didn't let not even one distraction, not even one temptation or anything, any sin, stop him from completing his work till completion. If Moses had to give up a lot, which he did, well, Jesus had to do that infinitely more. Being the very nature of God, king of kings, king of this universe, he didn't use that to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a human, just like you and me, and coming to this world, the king of kings coming to this world as a servant. He humbled himself and was obedient to the Father until death, death on the cross. And why did he do that? Who in the right mind would choose to do that? Because of you and me. Because of the love he has for us. That was the only way for us to have a restored relationship with God and to enjoy eternal life with him if we put our trust in Jesus. And if you have done that, we have Jesus' greatest example that we will want to follow in order to live a focused life with purpose and to make it count. I don't know about you, but I'm personally tired of being constantly distracted by so many things in my life that don't really matter. Like this, like that, or succeeding as something that doesn't really matter in God's view. I want my life to count. I want to spend my life for something that really matters. When one day I will be face to face with the Lord, I don't want him to say like, oh yeah, it was nice that Netflix series you watched, good job. No, the only words I want to hear is that well done, good and faithful servant. Your life counted, counted for something, had an impact. And as Christians, our general purpose in life is to glorify God, pursue holiness, fulfill the Great Commission. 
But do you have a specific purpose in your life with your God's given talents? You know, like for our church, we have creed as a guidance. Do you have one for your life? And do you recognize any distraction that God is prompting you to give up in order to fulfill your purpose in life? When I was younger, for example, um, in order to be disciplined with my quiet time, I struggled a bit in the morning to wake up earlier, so I used to put two alarms. I used to sleep at the top bunk bed, so one alarm would be closer to me, and the other alarm would be like farther away. So I, I had to basically like stand up from my bed and go and switch it off manually. And so by the time I would already be up, I would be like, okay, I would have given up going back to bed. So it did work. So what, I, what do you think could be the practical things that you might have to do to just set aside some of the distractions that God is prompting you to give away? But maybe you really struggle to complete the sentence, I live for. Maybe you don't realize that you were made with purpose and for a purpose. That you are not just stardust or a coincidence, that you are not a mistake. God, the creator of everything, created you and loved you way before the creation of the world and wants you to find forgiveness and purpose in him. I'd like to conclude with one of my favorite quotes from C.T. Studd. And he says, only one life will soon be passed. Only one life. But only what's done for Christ will last. Let's focus our eyes on the big picture, on why we are here, and on what can have an eternal impact. And let's throw off any other distractions which will stop us from fulfilling the purpose that God gave us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can be here together to worship you and to praise you. And we thank you that we are not a coincidence, Lord. We are not a mistake, Lord. It's not a coincidence that we are here this morning, Lord. And we thank you that you created us with a purpose, Lord, and for a purpose, Lord. And I pray for everyone in this room that they will realize that, Lord, this morning. And I pray that you will help us to fulfill this purpose in our lives, Lord. That one day when we will be in front of you, Lord, that you will tell us these precious words, Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us so that we could have a relationship with you. And I pray that this will happen in everyone in this room, Lord. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you give us and enable us to live a purpose life and a focused life, Lord. I pray that you really help us to do that and help us to take practical, um, to help us to understand practical things that we need to do and things we need to give up in order to live completely for you, Lord. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.